Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Mason Kern, joined as always alongside site publisher Chris Cartman. Chris, a lot to get to today, but first off, how you doing? I'm doing great, Mason. I actually uh, came out to California to visit my parents. They're born on the same day, three years apart, spending a, a few days out here. Normally, I'm not able to do that because we're covering football camp, but football camp uh, starting later for ASU this year gives me a rare opportunity. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's, it's about 35 degrees cooler here, which <laughs> I, I, I got to admit, I, I don't mind whatsoever. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I'm sure uh, you deserve it for sure. Enjoy that, uh, that weather and uh, happy early birthday to your parents as well as we're recording this on August 8th. And Chris, a lot to get to in this podcast today. We're going to be talking about a few subjects that are likely to be on the forefront of ASU fans' minds, uh, starting off with the hot summer in football recruiting. We'll get to that. And especially with the schedule being tentatively set for the football team, that is subject to change as we'll get into later. And also Remy Martin's return to the basketball team and, and his potential impact and the expectations for that squad looking ahead. But, but we'll start off in, in football recruiting. As I mentioned, it was a hot summer uh, just on the recruiting trail for this ASU football team. And up to this point, as we're recording this on August 8th, 19 commits in the cycle, kind of unprecedented. Chris, why have there been so many early commits more really than ever before? I think it was already sort of trending that way when you got the early signing period that that started a few years ago. But then what happened to accelerate it in this particular cycle is the pandemic. You have so many football players across the country are concerned about not having a senior season before the start of the signing period. And that means that there's not going to be film for them to demonstrate uh, improvement with their trajectory. And so a, a lot of the, the very top level uh, schools around the country, they had a little bit more ability to pressure kids into some commitments at the top of the food chain. And then that sort of moved down so that uh, the marketplace uh, had uh, a lot uh, less um, sort of, uh, of supply than the demand with those spots. And so uh, schools like ASU and many others around the country as well, have been able to get more kids committed uh, by the summertime, really, than we've ever seen in the past. Uh, and, uh, and ASU's done well. Um, and I think that there's going to be still, even though this is the case, just due to the nature of the way that this has unfolded, with no official visits for any of these kids the entire time, um, and the way that uh, uh, that could possibly change here in uh, October, November, maybe December, I still think there's going to be a lot of volatility, a lot of things that could change. You could see more decommitments than ever nationally, more flips, uh, more guys being offered blue shirts, more, uh, more replacements brought into classes. So even though it looks like it may be getting close to being finalized or really solidified, you can't really say that in this particular year. Right. And, and it's been just a hectic summer over an 11 day span in the middle of July, ASU picked up 10 commitments and that was the most they've had in a six, even more than they've ever had in the six months from national signing day in the first week of February through the end of July, the previous record was seven in one yeah. month in June of 2018. So really unprecedented. And you mentioned that volatility just, just with the, the rest of this cycle and, and kind of the expectations for how it might go. 
does this really mean that there won't be as much happening toward the December early signing period and if that actually is going to happen and or toward National Signing Day? So I think it's a good question. What it, what's happened it really is schools across the country, including ASU, have banked what they can right now, but then they're still looking for opportunities to get a better return on investment with recruiting moving forward between now and the early signing period. So they're not done recruiting. You would think, okay, they have 19 commitments. They're, that's, that's almost all the guys that they're going to have in, in any given class. But actually, no, uh, they're still very aggressively recruiting, especially offensive linemen, defensive linemen. And then, and then they're going to take the best available players um, at, at some of these other key spots if they're able to entice them. There are still some really elite recruits who weren't pressured into making commitments and feel like uh, they still have some good options to choose from. ASU is really pursuing some of those guys. Uh, people have asked me both on the on the site and on social media, does ASU have a chance to move up? Because right now they're ranked 24th nationally, skyrocketing from outside the top 70 before that uh, 11 days period that you talked about, uh, Mason, that I've never seen before, uh, to now 24th and 4th in the Pac-12. And I'm getting questions, are they going to be able to move up a lot further? I, I, think, I think that's tough going for them because other schools are going to also take more on more kids. The ASU is probably closer from a number standpoint than some other programs are, even if they replace them, it's, it's taking someone off of the rankings and adding someone onto the rankings. So unless they really uh, do something magical uh, with remaining targets available, I don't think they're going to end up with the top 15 class or anything like that. And they never have in, in um, the history of 24 seven sports. Um, but it is possible that they could stay in the top 25, maybe even potentially challenge the top 20 and, uh, and doing so for a second straight year uh, would, would really be uh, quite good momentum for them moving forward into what I think ASU staff believes to be a potentially special 22 uh uh, 2022 uh, recruiting class the the they've gotten a lot more national in this class as you know mason uh we've never seen commitments from all over the country in the way that they have done this year with multiple kids from florida to from wisconsin kids in 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 pennsylvania and uh louisiana and really just kind of all over the place north carolina virginia um etc but uh, so what, what happened is they felt like the the 2021 class wasn't as deep in california where they signed in 2020 the most uh top 100 kids from that state of any school which had never happened before and was extremely uh remarkable but um, so they, they decided to recruit more nationally in this 2021 class, especially because of how many offensive and defensive linemen that they, they wanted to bring in. Um, the class is going to be comprised of at least half of offensive and defensive linemen. It's hard to get all those guys from the West, so they broaden their horizons. But in 2022, they won't probably need to be as deep at those position groups, and it, they like the way that the class is is comprised um, in the West. So I, I don't think they'll they'll be as – uh, far flung all over the place uh, with their recruiting efforts and they could put together pretty impressive class. So the trajectory overall in what they're doing and how much action is actually happening in recruiting while a lot of college sports appear, appear to be standing still uh, is something that's noteworthy. 
and 11 different states represented on ASU's public commit list right now. 14 of 19 commits have been uh, pledged to ASU since the beginning of June. So that's what we're talking about with that. Uh, just, just these last couple of months being uh, so impressive just for ASU and, and really unprecedented on the recruiting trail. And we'll talk individually about each of these prospects in a subsequent premium podcast. So make sure you, you be on the lookout for that. But Chris, transitioning now into the football schedule, uh, obviously, as I said previously, still tentative and, and subject to change depending on uh, a lot of unknown factors still uh, that, that the society is really still parsing through right now. But what were your kind of initial reactions just from the 10 game schedule? Yeah, I thought it was uh, – ASU's probably got one of the better schedules uh, in the conference when you look at it, just not having to play Washington, which is tough. Um, the, they have uh, two road games in a row um, throughout the whole season, which, you know, that's not bad. You know, um, to, to not have to do that twice I think is a good thing. Um, they – Arizona, even though it's a, you know, we'll see if it happens as scheduled because there's flexibility and uh, there, there's been talk about it maybe getting moved back to the bye week or maybe even at the end of the season. But to open against Arizona is, of course, um, not nearly as much of a challenge for the Pac-12 as opening on the road at USC. Uh, also, I think that um, they're playing Colorado and Washington State uh, on the road when those schools have new head coaches. So those schools are sort of going to be adjusting. And then USC and Oregon being on the road, uh, those are tough games, but much less so if they don't have their normal fan attendance, especially going to Oregon. So uh, it, it, you, in my mind, you're going to probably on average do better uh, in the Pac-12 when you're two toughest opponents are on the road because it makes you, even if you lose those games, it, it makes the other games that are more of the toss-ups a little bit more advantageous for you in your ability to win them. So I think ASU's uh, poised to be able to compete for the Pac-12 if they're able to get the whole schedule in, uh, you know, as it's, you know, currently – uh, comprised or in in some way close to that. Not everything is great about the schedule. Um, they have to, you know, go back to USC after I think Washington State, two games on the road. Um, you don't want to really necessarily have to do that as a second game on a back-to-back -back road trips, and uh, they have to play uh, in in um, you know two kind of cold weather uh, uh, parts of of the Pac-12 in from like the last days of October or in, into November, which ASU has at, at times sort of struggled with that. So that's something to kind of look for. But, um, you know, overall, I think it's pretty good. And the, the three non-conference games that ASU lost were obviously against Northern Arizona, UNLV, and BYU. And if the schedule does hold as it's currently set, it would be the first season opener between ASU and U of A since 1937. Obviously a lot still subject to change, as you said. And Chris, as we're recording this again on August 8th, I, I want to get your take on the MAC canceling their football season and, and the changes in the Big Ten happening and maybe the impact that that potentially has on the Pac-12 and ASU. So look, um, I believe I said on our last uh, premium podcast that I, I'm still uh, believing that 
football is a little bit less likely than likely. I think I asked 40 to 45% was the rate that I put the season happening uh, as it's sort of currently set up in the fall. Uh, there's a lot of hurdles, of course, associated with that. Um, so far, ASU and, and actually a lot of other schools too have done quite a good job at operating sort of within what they're trying to keep to be a bubble or as close to that as possible. Um, ASU's going through all of its walkthroughs and its, its um, potted sort of strength and conditioning program. And apparently there haven't really been any issues with, with doing this. So that's, that's a very positive uh, development. Um, you know, extremely low number of positive taste cases, and especially relative to just the same, uh, uh, you know, demographics when you go outside the bubble into the broader community. And that's a positive thing as well. You can make a case that these guys are actually maybe safer in some respects being within these sort of uh, monitored and a little bit more structured settings where there's um, a lot more demands put on them in terms of their ability to participate with the teams. Um, I think that that logistically gets a lot tougher when you start to incorporate a lot more people into the equation around them and then traveling and their peers being on campuses in some of these places and, uh, and all of the sort of other uh, people that, that could compromise uh, the bubble. But um, it, it, it's, it's uh, the, one of the other components really that I think a lot of people are, are focused on is the, you know, Liability may not be the right word, but but a feeling of responsibility or obligation to the student athletes related to how conferences and these universities feel. Like if you're not having your, your students on campus or you're giving them the option of being being in uh, in, you know, video learning, you know, Zoom learning versus uh, in classrooms. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of questions about, you know, pushing football players to participate. And I know that a lot that's, that it's being made clear to, to them that, that you can opt out and all that stuff, but there is a peer pressure sort of a, a um, you know, everybody wants to sort of be with their team sort of element that's associated with that. So I'm glad I don't have to be responsible for working out these kinds of things. Right. And, and especially when you have to go play somebody else and you don't know about their ability. Look, Mason, we've seen that major league baseball has had some issues uh, with, with several teams now. And, um, and that, that is a, to me, it's an easier environment because you have one third as many players and, and personnel around the players you have a lot more money involved, so it's 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 uh, easier to move the team from place to place without having as many people sort of encroaching upon their circles. In college football, you don't really have those things. You know, these, a lot of these guys live together. They have girlfriends. They have you know other people that come kind of in contact with. Um, and then when you travel, it's it's a much bigger sort of production and more difficult. So logistically, I still see hurdles. And um, I just want to say, like, there, there's been so much on our board and then just kind of in general, there's been a lot of sentiment from an, a, a vocal minority, I would say, of, of fans out there who really want to see football happen and sports happen that are kind of blaming sports writers and media people 
for being negative. And the thing I want to sort of convey to all those people is we're talking every single day as reporters to, uh, uh, you know, at the places that we cover as the, the, the teams, uh, administrators, uh, league officials, et cetera, et cetera. And from that, you get a sense of how they feel about the prospects for sports. And, and, and if reporters are conveying uh, or even if there's a subtext to it that media, that, uh, that conferences and, and, and programs and coaches are skeptical of season happening, and then that gets conveyed, that's not the media being negative about it. We, uh, as reporters, this is our livelihoods. We don't want things that threaten our livelihoods um, to, to create a big sort of impact or uh, not happen at all and then lead to a cascading ramifications associated with that financially. I've had friends that have lost their jobs uh, during this time. So the idea, and I know a lot of other people um, at other outlets that I don't personally know have lost their jobs, really good reporters and media professionals. And that may be a contraction that's difficult to, to then come back from. So we don't want, none of us want there to be no sports, any sort of uh, expressed, um, you know, concern about whether it's going to happen is more related to um, the logistical uh, uh, challenges expressed by, around, by all the people that we speak to in the formulation of what we think to be the likelihood of, of these things happening. Right. And I think that's an important point just in terms of where reporters stand and, and how they do their jobs. And I want to get into, Chris, the whole Pac-12, we are united kind of uh, movement by the players across the conference and uh, where that stands, what your take was on it and, and more details. Right. So I'm not surprised by this happening whatsoever. Uh, I think it's been in, in some respects, it's been, um, overdue almost that that this would happen that you would expect to see pushback uh from players on some of these things and covid year just logically makes sense right uh players feel like they haven't had as much of a shareholding stake or say in what happens with um the protocols and rules and treatment and uh and safety and health around uh college athletics and that is like you know several years ago the cte stuff that really sort of started up and a lot of concerns around how much uh how many padded practice and how many uh heavily contact practices there used to be that number is really sort of shrunk down uh in the last decade or so i would say which is good uh, because you're, there's a lot less exposure to those sorts of things in practice. But then you get to this sort of conflict that inherently exists whereby athletic departments, they need the money from football to fund their operation. Ostensibly, they need it to pay themselves. Okay, if you're an administrator, you're, a co you're not a coach because they're going to get paid regardless, but you're an administrator and and – uh, all the other sort of ancillary people around your department, if you don't have football, you don't have the revenue stream that allows everybody to get their, their paychecks. And, and so that means that you have a bias associated with that, that a personal a conflict, if you will. 
where um, you kind of need football to happen or else maybe you have to start laying off people, furloughing. Maybe you yourself is in jeopardy. And, uh, and it's the players' uh, uh, view of this from their prism, seeing this sort of reality and that they are sort of like pawns in some respects or could be used as pawns or viewed as pawns. Not that they are in all cases. I don't mean that whatsoever. And at ASU, it's important to say that the players have said and consistently uh, their parents have told me and others that they believe that the ASU's coaches are the best that they're going to be able to work with from Edwards understanding of this from a, a, a former player then coaching at the NFL level and others and the way that the, 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 just the, how uh, this staff is sort of uh, comprised uh, and Cody Shear even expressed this to me. He's listed as the contact person for ASU on uh, this, this unity movement uh, that players are having in order to try to get some concessions from the Pac-12 conference in general. Uh, Shear said that Herm Edwards has been great when they talked about it. He felt like uh, it was like the most understanding that a coach could possibly be about the situation. And he was very supportive. Uh, and and uh, I think that I'll, several of the things that they've asked for make a lot of sense and are going to happen, especially around the health and safety issues of COVID and um, sort of around the uh, not being at risk of losing your scholarship or your spot on a team if you opt out this year. Uh, and those, it was important to sort of codify those things from the Pac-12 level. Now, some of the other things that they asked for uh, you know, primarily the, the, the splitting of the, the revenue from the Pac-12 network. Very, very uh, entirely unrealistic, and particularly right now. Um, a, they, there's no way they would ever get a, a percentage like that. It, maybe, there, maybe in some, uh, some sort of a uh, progressive modeling approach that other conferences also get on board with, we could potentially see players subsidized at a, a, a higher level in the form of increased money in uh, their, their loot checks, you know, these um, stipends that they get uh, already for living expenses and whatnot uh, be, be expanded, maybe even greatly expanded. Uh, but they're not going to get a, a, a revenue split of networks and, and things of that nature. And they were told that straight up. But the, I, I made a post about this in the Devil's Sanctuary. I'm sure that some of our audience members here have, have read that. What we have in college football is uh, sort of a bubble building, okay? It, it's, you're not going to be able to sustain uh, the rate of increase that these athletic departments have uh, seen uh, with their revenue growth over the last 10, 15 years due to TV rights and other uh, uh, revenue streams. You're not going to be able to see that be sustained when it comes to coaching salaries at the rate that they've increased the uh, the administrators the number of administrators the amount of administrative bloat that there is in a lot of these programs and the enormous enormous money that's been spent on facilities projects without changing the model as it relates to the players okay meaning that you now have coaches making eight million dollars a year you know, 10 years ago, no, no coach was making probably half that. You have a lot more money that's spent on 
the uh, even though you can't have more on field coaches uh, beyond the one that they added to get to 10, you, you, th- there's a, an additional phalanx of personnel behind the scenes in recruiting in, uh, in your uh, in analysts uh, to your program. And then in uh, a lot of the graphic art and video production and, and elements of recruiting, it, you're not going to be able to just keep expanding that and getting more luxurious facilities and getting coaching salaries going into the, the, uh, the eight figure, uh, annual total 10, 12, 15 million, whatever it is going to be without players, um, you know, pushing back against that. And and they have to sign a scholarship in order to get a scholarship. They have to basically agree to participate in this system and then not have representation, not unionize, sort of any of these things. And there's so much money in college sports now that um, this sort of thing is uh, inevitable and going to continue. And the NCAA as organization is going to continue to come under more scrutiny. And so I think that we're going to see some structural changes likely to happen here, not during a COVID year because of concerns about the money, and legitimately so. I really get that. But there are there do need to be some changes. I think the NCAA has been really regressive to this and they wouldn't be in the situation that they are in now and they will continue to be in moving forward uh, for the near term had they increased the stipend money that that uh, revenue sports athletes were getting uh, a few years ago. I, I really strongly believe that they should have given uh, these athletes two or three thousand dollars more a month, uh, certainly at least while they their sports are in season, if not year round. Uh, you know, m- more of a full cost of attendance, and then uh, them having some walking around money uh, to take care of some other things, or to, or to send home to their family members, many of whom uh, you know at times uh, have have needs that they're unable to be met uh, from a financial standpoint. So. Um, I, I think that in some respects, change is long overdue. I, I would like to see that it, it, it happen so that we can continue uh, college sports and that, and that it continues to be robust because um, there are so many things about college sports that are great and, uh, and deserve to be continued as long as everyone is feeling good about it. And you make some great points there. And I want to just quickly get into... Uh, this another question, just as it it pertains to Cody Shear and ASU's involvement, was he the extent of ASU's kind of involvement in this whole We Are United movement? Right, good question. So people maybe saw that I tweeted that ASU players were not involved, and at that time that that happened, it was ASU's uh, administrators and staff had asked ASU players about if they were participating or involved and, and had not received any feedback that that was ongoing. And uh, Cody Shear was only in the very, by himself, the, the, the very earliest sort of stages of interacting with uh, a former Oregon player uh, about that because Shear transferred to ASU from Oregon and, and it hadn't become something that other ASU players were involved in from a, a conversational standpoint. But they have an app that, that all players uh, have been sent. And, uh, and um, from the time that they started this, 
with around 100 players a couple weeks ago with Cody Shear being the first ASU player to, to, um, to after this was released by the Players' Tribune. And then in the days following that, the number went from 100 Pac-12 players involved in the conversation to more than 450 players. It, and I want to be clear, it, they're not all threatening to opt out of the season or quit or any of that. A lot of them were just in support of one or more of the initiatives uh, or the, the, the requests that they have put forth. Not necessarily all of them or even most of them uh, feel like all the, the demands have to be met in order for them to play. It's more that guys want uh, to get some traction and, and get some concessions and be able to continue the conversation in a way that yields further gains subsequently. And a lot to the still unknown about just the the prospects of the season and if it happens. But uh, we do have, if as if everything is scheduled accordingly and everything does happen as planned, uh, we have on the site right now uh, Jacob Rudner's story ranking ASU opponents by order of difficulty and our staff predictions uh, for the 10-game season. If you want to go check that out, it's on our homepage on sundevilsource.com and Chris um, can you kind of just get in I know all of our staff uh, predicted a seven and three season except for Jacob Rudner who predicted eight and two can you kind of quickly get into your thoughts on that yeah so as I said earlier it's very clear that the toughest games on ASU schedule appear to be at Oregon and at USC Um, but if you look at the next toughest schedule Uh, next toughest game on the schedule, I think it really drops down a good percentage because ASU gets Utah at home. And it's a, it's a Utah team that has replaced the vast majority of its starters, um, which that's should be somewhat of an equalizer to an ASU team that has a lot more talent returning. Uh, I think I've been saying as long as I've been doing this, uh, that Kyle Winningham's been a coach there that he's an excellent coach and they do a great job with their program and I think they'll be they'll continue to be really formidable, but um, it's a very, it's a winnable game for ASU, and also getting Cal at home makes that a very winnable game. So you could say that maybe those two, and then Stanford, which ASU also plays as its home opener, like those three games might be ASU's three toughest home games. But I really feel like ASU, on average, would probably win two of the three games. Uh, and then if, so if you go if you if, though, if you assume, as I do or believe, as I do, that those five games are ASU's five toughest games uh, and that ASU probably should be able to win all five of its easiest games, then that's how I get to the idea of a seven and three being the most likely result for ASU. It's basically thinking, okay, like Oregon and USC are probably losses. ASU will probably beat – uh, two of three of Stanford, Cal, and Utah at home. And then ASU should win its other five games, UCLA at home, and then at Washington State, at Colorado, uh, at Arizona, and then Oregon State at home is probably should be the most the easiest, uh, most winnable game. So uh, I like the schedule for ASU. I think seven and three is – you know, if they if they ran this, I, I always look at it like if they ran this schedule a hundred times, seven and three would be the the most likely results, the 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 most common result, and that's how I tend to make my 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 forecasts. Uh, 
is eight and two more likely than six and four? I think that's where you get into a lot more questions, you know, that you maybe can go either way. I think six and four is probably more likely. Uh, and eight, and then eight and two is probably the third most likely sort of scenario. Now that this view, you know, greatly uh, differs with the ESPN FPI, which we also wrote a story about, which kind of predicts ASU to win under five games on average this season. I think that's just really flawed. And ESPN FPI also last year predicted ASU uh, would, would miss a bowl game, um, you know, somewhere around the, after right. the first third of the season. And then we saw ASU actually uh, play quite well uh, and, 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 and um, you know, end up with an eight win season. So um yeah, I think seven and three. That's kind of what I'm going with right now. And by the way, if we are able to get a lot more information and perspective on ASU and other teams from preseason camp, there will be an updated uh, uh, prediction based upon those things. You always got to see about injuries, you know, health, how, how freshmen look when they come in. So it, that, this isn't my final prediction by any stretch. This is sort of just my first blush look at, at the schedule. And speaking of kind of preseason camp and, and our content plan uh, thereof, we'll starting on Sunday, Chris, I know we're going to be uh, for the, really the next five or six weeks until uh, practically the season begins, we're going to be rolling out our player capsules, position overviews, and uh, camp preview content as well. Yeah, so typically we do that stuff in like May, June, July. But um, – in anticipation of this year being a lot different in terms of our access to practices and camp and, and our ability to cover things in person uh, and, and a, a much delayed season, uh, we decided to hold off and then put all of those things in a, in a more condensed period of time uh, in August and September uh, to sort of keep fans really engaged. And, and also I knew that recruiting because of COVID would take such a huge uh, uh, increase in the amount of our time in those June, July months, uh, which it did. Uh, th that's sort of the reason for how we've reconfigured our content, but it just means that there's a lot more stuff. And then also as part of that, I'm going to be putting up the evaluations of every single one of these uh, 2021 commitments uh, because a lot of them aren't playing high school football this year. So that means that we can rechannel some of that time into evaluations based on where they're at to this point. So that also is going to be starting to roll out here in the next couple of weeks. And we'll continue to obviously have our recruiting updates on, on any uh, 2021s offered, 2022s. We've had a lot rolling out through these past uh, summer months, so we'll still obviously have all of that content. But transitioning into basketball now, uh, arguably the biggest, uh, really not arguably the biggest piece of news was the return of Remy Martin. Chris, really just first off, what is the impact uh, that, that his return has on this, this program? Massive. I can't even I can't even stress it enough. You, you look at ASU historically, Mason. Uh, the program has never won twenty or more games in four straight seasons. And if they play a full schedule this year, I'm very confident they will they will do that for the first time. So, Remy Martin will be 
perhaps the winningest basketball player in ASU history. Certainly the most wins. I, I don't know by percentage, probably not by percentage. When you look at some of the guys from like the, the end of the 70s to the very early 80s, they may have won a higher percentage of games. But the, 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 the most wins ever, Remy Martin, is, is probably going to be that guy. We know ASU was going to make the tournament this year. Uh, had there been one that was fielded and played, that would have been a third straight tournament berth. Uh, that means ASU has a, uh, a possibility, what, to my mind, would be effectively four straight NCAA tournaments with a good season this year. That um, also, you know, just doesn't happen in, in Tempe. And um, this is a, a player who is already 10th all-time in assists in three years, 17th all-time in scoring in ASU in three years. He will end up, as long as he stays healthy and they play the season again, keep saying it as a caveat, but he will end up first or second all-time in assists at ASU, uh, along with Derek Glasser in some order, one or two. And he will, uh, if he has as many roughly around as much scoring as last year even if it drops off a little bit he still will push into the top 10 potentially even the top five all-time in scoring trey holder um you know recent really great asu basketball player uh is the only guy currently in the top five just barely in scoring and in assists at asu all time remy martin would probably bump him out and uh, become the only player in the top three in assists and maybe top five in scoring. Um, this is someone, This is a guy whose number, uh, his, his name, number should be hanging from the rafters at Desert Financial Arena uh, sooner than later after his career is done. And I would say that um, it's an enormous boost for ASU's team. Uh, people will remember going into the last couple of weeks of the season last year when ASU went to go play at UCLA, it was um, that week, it, it was really sort of uh, unclear who would be player of the year in the conference. Um, and, and ASU sort of faltered and then Oregon really finished strong and Peyton Pritchard became really clearly the I think I don't know if it was unanimous, but I think it was. It should have should have been uh, Player of the Year with Oregon winning the conference. But I'm telling you, like with four games left or whatever, uh, if ASU had 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 the, the the finish that Oregon had instead, Remy Martin was right there. He's he's the leading returning scorer in the league, and uh, I think he is the signature guard. Uh, in the league right now so he's an odds-on favorite uh, if ASU has the type of season it's capable of uh, of um, you know competing for a Pac-12 championship which by the way has never happened the uh, they they went I think 15 and 3 one season 81 maybe and and still uh, finished second to UCLA which was the, was it UCLA or Oregon State I, I maybe I'm maybe I got to fact check that one but it was one of the two teams and uh, which is remarkable and but they are a legitimate contender for a Pac-12 championship this year with uh, Martin and Verge and then the five-star additions, of course, of Josh Christopher and and uh, a borderline five-star guy, depending where you look, in Marcus Bagley. Right, and I, I want to get into the recruiting class here in a little bit, but specifically on Martin, it'll be really interesting to see what type of numbers he puts up in this year's offense, especially just considering you get an influx of new talent. And I'm wondering what feedback he got from the NBA advisory board in terms of maybe we see him drop his production in scoring and pick up an assist. Um, what's your take on that? 
Well, yeah. So uh, the feedback that he did get for sure from NBA front offices was improve your three point shooting and show to an even greater degree your floor generalship and your ability to run a team successfully. Uh, ASU fans have seen Remy Martin, uh, you know, a hundred times with his hair flowing behind him at breakneck speed on a fast <laughs> break coming down and then pulling up for a two inside the three point line. Right. And you don't do that in an NBA. That's not going to happen. You got range I mean, is dead mid range. You know, it's not really happening. And, and granted, but in all, all fairness to Remy Martin, he makes a high percentage of that shot, right? It's just the the, the analytics of that type of shot and, uh, and his tendency overall, I think, in general, to really push it in terms of trying to put the team on his back and score the ball uh, to get the team – you know, through, you know, kind of dead spots in games. Whereas I think the NBA wants to see him, you know, create, get to places on the floor that open things up for shots, shot making and inside out brand of basketball for teammates with high percentage looks. And so that's the key there. there I think ASU fans, of course, remember there, there were some games last year. Who do they lose to at home Mason where they played really poorly and, and, and Martin took a bunch of questionable shots when he was really trying to, uh, to just sort of pull ASU out of the this, this situation. Maybe it was Utah. I don't know, but Colorado or Utah, I think. But, I remember what you're uh, talking about. I have to look up the exact game. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I think it was Washington. Maybe I'm drawing a blank on the opponent, but, but the the, the fact remains that there were times clearly that he just tried to do too much. Uh, And it, and it comes from a good place. It comes from a passion to want to win and, 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 and play big for your team and all that stuff, but it has to sort of be done in the right way. And, it took a long time in the season for Martin and Verge to sort of get on the same page because they're both such ball dominant players and they kind of need the ball in their hand and they want to score the ball. They want to set up shots for themselves and all that stuff. And it just didn't really look good, but they finally started to sort of get it together. And now you, you know, Rob Edwards, you take out of the equation, Rob Edwards, a lot more of a catch and shoot guy. He didn't really want to and didn't have much of an ability to create off the dribble. But Josh Christopher's addition is another ball-dominant guy. It's another guy who has been able to get his own shot, even when he's defended by two and three guys. So there's there's questions that people have, and, and understandably so, about uh, you know about the ability to play cohesively when you have those three guys kind of on the court all together. So... I'm interested in seeing how it resolves itself. And when you don't have Romello White, everybody's going to be focused on that as one of the biggest challenges with this team, and understandably so. I was one last year who thought that ASU probably could have played and, and maybe even should have played in some games. Jalen Graham more in a bigger front court lineup, even paired with Romello White. So I, I think Jalen Graham's a really good prospect, and he has a, a chance to be uh, a great Pac-12 player. But going from 11 minutes a game to, to maybe needing to play 25 or 30 minutes a game and the foul trouble component uh, and, and, and uh, having stamina and being able to sort of con- maintain a cons- level of consistency, all those things kind of remain to be seen. Uh, but I just overall would say that this, this has to be um, 
as uh, imposing a roster as ASU has had, at least since the 95 Sweet 16 team, uh, and potentially even going back a lot earlier to uh, that phenomenal Byron Scott, Lafayette, Lever, uh, um, you know, Sam Williams, Paul Williams uh, team in 1981, which was uh, for sure ASU's best uh, two-year stretch uh, since he joined the conference uh, in 70, 78. And that game earlier, Remy Martin's not so great uh, showing was against Washington, second to last game of the conference season. He went one for 10 from three. Uh, in that game, but yeah, just too, and too many of those were just early possession shots. They were shots that were just you know they were going to be able to get a better shot on a lot of those possessions, right? And it's that type of decision making the NBA uh, teams are talking about when they you know say what they want to see from Remy moving forward, right? Yeah, and especially two for fourteen in the game in that game, and we'll see just especially with the, these new additions, like you mentioned, Josh Christopher, Marcus Bagley, even in the front court. I mean, this team brought in the number seven recruiting class in the nation, number two in the Pac-12. Also got some front court additions in Chris Austin, the junior college kid, and Pablo, I think it's Juba. I don't really know how to say his last name. Zubia. So, Zubia. Yeah, excuse me for that one. But um, a four-star kid from the Ukraine. So um, some talent, and then you have two transfers as well, Chris, obviously not in the 24-7 sports uh, team rankings for, for rankings purposes but Luther Muhammad and Han Woods will be beneficial for the program moving forward but this team this year what does the rotation kind of look like with some of these new additions but also losing losing Romello White uh, to transfer and some of these other guys yeah I think pretty clearly you have four starters that are are extremely likely uh Remy Martin Josh Christopher uh Alonzo Verge and uh, then mentioned earlier, Jalen Graham. The the there are some sort of voices out there who th- somehow think that Alonzo Verge is going to end up coming off the bench again, and no. like being a boost to the second team. And I'm like, you're thinking about like you're applying NBA sort of basketball to college. He is the seventh leading returning scorer in the Pac-12. He's one of the best returning guards in the Pac-12. Okay. Guys like that don't come off the bench. Remy, they, they all play 30 plus minutes. Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge are going to play 32 to 34 minutes a game. Okay. In, in most games. So that means that they're going to be on the court, a vast majority of every game together. So this idea that you're not going to start them doesn't make sense. Now, what you can do and what ASU will do is there will be plenty of times when only two of those three, Christopher, Verge, Martin will be on the floor together because ASU's fourth guard is Jalen House. And after that, there's kind of a drop off. They don't really have a fifth guy. So what they'll do is probably is they'll start the three guards. They'll start in the post Graham. The fourth start, the fifth starter, pardon me, is the toughest to peg. It's going to be one of three guys. You can go with Tayshawn Cherry, Kamani Lawrence, or uh, Marcus Bagley. It's going to be one of those three. I personally think it's going to take a little bit of time maybe to resolve itself, but that Marcus Bagley is probably going to be the guy. Uh, Bobby Hurley has raved about Bagley's shooting ability and early skill workouts. He just has a different sort of uh, approach and understanding and feel. He's on a great trajectory. His brother plays in the NBA. There's a different sort of mindset associated when you see the work ethic that that entails. And I just don't think he's going to be denied. I think he's just too good. So, But then what they'll do is a lot of times they'll play with only two of those guards on the court and they'll have – uh, two forwards on the court in combination between 
the three guys that I mentioned there, uh, Cherry Lawrence and Bagley, and then uh, Zubia uh, as another option. So the four guys, two of them will probably play a lot on the four together with two guards, and then a post player, either Jalen Graham or, um, or uh, Chris Austin you know, depending upon how good he is. It really, I don't know what, what to expect from those two other front court newcomers. I think it's kind of remains to be seen. The, the, the kid from Ukraine, he's, he just turned 17. He's like a year young. He, like there was a lot of questions of whether he'd wait another year before coming over to the States for college. He's not even been at ASU yet because of the international uh, travel, you know, issues related to getting him you know, on campus. So we'll have to see about that. And then the guys you mentioned, Mohammed uh, is sitting out the season. Holland Woods, um, I was told that if Remy Martin comes back, they're, they're, they're going to redshirt him. And he'll, you know, next, next season, he'll be a key player because obviously you're going to lose probably all three of those guards. Josh Christopher, more than likely, is one and done lottery pick. And the other two guys will have exhausted their eligibility. Right, and it'll be interesting. I'm curious about Jalen Graham in the front court because of the foul trouble issues he found himself in at times in limited minutes last year, and which of these new guys kind of steps up to provide backup minutes and uh, and how that all looks. But Chris, what should the expectations be for this year's team? Where do you peg them in the preseason um, Pac-12 uh, poll, and 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 what is the ceiling? So I just finished uh, the Pac-12 preview, which I largely write for Athlon Magazine uh, just a few days ago. So I looked at every single team's roster and did a really kind of a deep dive about how uh, the programs are feeling about their talent and everything. I personally think that UCLA is the most complete team. They they really dragged their feet last year, buying into McCronin's you know, style. Very, you know, he's a defensive-minded, he's a grind-you-out type of a coach, and that's not what a lot of players really want to do anymore, and especially the way things had been there at UCLA in recent years. But when they finally you know, begrudgingly decided to play the way that he wanted. They just, they just, I think they won 11 of the last 13 games, something like that. And they returned so much. Um, Chris Smith's decision to pull out of the NBA draft and return to school was an enormous uh, development for them. I think he's, you know, he was a first team all conference player in, in, in the 10 that the PAC 12 had, but I think he's still a little bit underappreciated and his development is still really rapidly growing. So he could become a dominant player this year. Tiger Campbell, uh, you know, being next to him in the backcourt, probably a little little underrated for what he is. You got Chris Smith up up front. I just think they are, I mean, Jalen Hill, pardon me, uh, up front. Uh, I think they are um, like a really complete team Jaime Hawkins uh, junior uh, was very good as a freshman so that transferred too from Kentucky and they got the yeah they got the, the Kentucky transfer they got uh, they got the um, what's the kid's name who's a um, tip of my tongue play for Compton Magic AAU uh, freshman coming in who's a, a wing who's a really really great player yeah Johnny Juzang that's who you're talking about from Kentucky and then they got another kid who's coming in who's good so they, they're the deepest and most talented team uh, and uh, in my opinion A- ASU though I think it's the second best team right now um, you have Oregon is I think it's a top three in some order that everybody's going to have UCLA ASU Oregon 
Oregon, of course, lost its best player, Peyton Pritchard, but has two all-league caliber guards coming back and then got a UNLV transfer who averaged 14 and a half points. Uh, also guard, they are also going to be a very guard-heavy team like ASU, and that's just a normal thing in the Pac-12 and really in college basketball nowadays. Uh, both of those teams are benefited by the lack of interior, strong interior play uh, across the league when, in term, when, I, when I thought about it in terms of matchups. So that's why they are you know, even more probably deserving of being in the top three. And then after those three, I think that uh, you have Stanford and USC and Arizona in some order of three as the next group. Now, Arizona, they lost their top five players. They had the three great NBA prospects as freshmen. They went extremely heavy on international flair. They got like four overseas guys that are coming in, including twins uh, from Europe, uh, and then a couple, like a kid from France, and another, another, another kid. They are a very difficult sort of team to peg as a result of that. Um, you look at Stanford, they, they, they lost. They had the first one-and-done player that they lost um, in their program's history, but they also do get a lot back, and they had a pretty good recruiting class. I think uh, Oscar De Silva is you know, one of maybe the best uh, overall you know, front-court player returning in the conference, Def- definitely one of the top two or three. And, uh, and then USC gets uh, Mobley. Evan Mobley is just an absolute freaking nature you know, seven foot kid who could put the ball on the floor and play on the perimeter and just super long. And they, uh, what they decided to do to try to maximize him was they added three uh, division one transfers who were able to play immediately. All of whom uh, were, were the best player at their low to, to mid major program before they came in. So um, the, there's not as many wins to be had against doormat anymore in this league you look at the way that Washington State and Cal were for a lot of years they it was almost just like you could chalk up wins those teams they changed their coaches last year they are much more competitive they're they're a lot better uh in that respect and so that makes the league top to bottom a little bit more competitive um I think Colorado Utah they're going to be hard pressed to be, have winning seasons. Oregon State is sort of trending downward. Washington didn't really get enough talent to uh, climb too much from a really disappointing last place finish in the conference last season. So, uh, I, in the time that I've been doing this job, I don't think that I've ever pegged ASU second in the Pac 12. So, so that means, you know, my expectations are for the team are as high as they've ever been. Yeah, definitely. I mean, high prospects for sure. And I think Washington's season you highlighted, it just really disappointing with the talent they had last year. And were you referring with that UCLA kid, were you referring to Dacian Nix? Yeah, Dacian Nix. Yeah, he he actually is going pro. He's going to the G League. Oh, that's right. That's right. He's going to the G League. That's right. Right. So they they got, right. So they got, uh, but they have have another wing that I'm still forgetting. I think Jalen Clark is that kid. Okay, so they have Jalen Clark's good too. So exactly. Yeah. So they have, so they have uh, Juzang coming in. They have Jaime Hawkes. They have Chris Smith. They got um, they got Jalen Hill, and they have uh, Tiger Campbell. And I'm doing this off the top of my head, but then they also Chris have Smith. Chris. Yeah. So they have like who I talked about earlier. So they have like they legitimately are going to go about eight or nine deep 
with guys that I consider to be above average or better Pac-12 players. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, it'll be a very interesting season if it goes on, obviously uh, a lot of unknowns still in that department, but uh, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast for site publisher, Chris Cartman. I've been your host, Mason Kern saying so long and thanks for tuning in.